Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. We'll be looking this evening at verses 1 through 10. And it's the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. Please join me one more time in prayer. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for the astounding privilege it is to gather together as your people, sons and daughters of the living God, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ to sing praises to your name, to gather together to hear from you through your word, to be sanctified, strengthened, built together as your people. Father, we do pray that you would do that now. Speak to us, Father, through your word. Do your work of opening our eyes, strengthening our hearts, and giving joy to your people by the power of your spirit. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, on Sunday, we heard an excellent sermon from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, from our brother Bart, about the birth of the King, the incarnation of the Son of God who has come to save his people from our sin, not because we deserve to be saved, but because of our desperate need to be saved. And this evening, we're going to look at the nature of this king, the Messiah, the Christ, and and the nature of his rule. Who is this king? Well, Isaiah opens his majestic book, confronting the prideful uh, people of God in stark ways, depicting the people as corrupt children who have forsaken the Lord, going their own way seeking to live according to their own wisdom in full-on rebellion, completely deserving to be judged. But Isaiah holds out the hope of redemption at every step of the way. First, in the cleansing of one sinner from his sin and depicting the birth of a child who would deliver his people, as we heard on Sunday. In chapter 10, Isaiah depicts a stark moment where the appropriate judgment of humankind is depicted as the destruction of a great and wonderful forest. This once majestic woodland, full of beautiful, tall, strong trees, is laid waste, utterly ruined. It has been cut down and decimated, leaving a wasteland in its place. You can imagine, you just picture the, you, on the news, you've seen the, the videos and, and photos of, of the forests on the, on the western half of our country right now being laid waste by, by forests, and you see the destruction left in its midst, and that's what Isaiah pictures here. And so you can imagine the suspense as the original audience heard this and knew that this was being spoken of about them, about the pending judgment of God, the desolation to anticipate that the mighty will fall. The situation seems hopeless and bleak. And so it's here that Isaiah lifts his voice to proclaim the hope that we have, the return of the true king, the the promise of the long-awaited Messiah who will reign in righteousness and holiness, righting every wrong and reversing the curse that was occurred in Eden. You see, the message of Christmas isn't only about a baby born in a manger, though it certainly is that, but it's also about a king who will reign forever. And that gives us reason to rejoice. So let's look now. Please follow along as I read the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. 
This is God's holy, hope-giving, joy-inducing, and authoritative word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord." He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole over the the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den." They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. May God bless the preaching of his word. Well, Isaiah chapter 11 is an invitation, brothers and sisters, to rejoice in the hope of the coming king. We're going to look at this this evening in three sections, three reasons to rejoice this Christmas Eve. First, rejoice in the return of the king. So verse 1, what is going on here? You've got this picture of desolation in chapter 10 that is brought in during the reign of King Ahaz, who is the latest in a line of many failed kings. And it's brought about by the hand of their enemies, by the Assyrians. And so it's a stark picture. Isaiah pictures this desolate forest, nothing but stumps remaining. There is, there's no life in sight, no birds singing in the air. And then he identifies a shoot coming from the root of Jesse. Verse 1. Now, Jesse, you you may recall, is the father of David, and it's his line that the Messiah is prophesied to come. So so the original readers would hear this, they they would hear this as pregnant, full of meaning. They would hear the root of Jesse, and their ears would prick up. They would know that something is coming. The promised one will come forth, Isaiah says. There is reason to hope. There is reason to rejoice. So who is this promised one who is returning? What is he like? Verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. David was empowered by the Holy Spirit along with a number of other godly leaders throughout the Scriptures. But here Isaiah says the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. It will dwell with him. It will remain upon him. It will endure with him. So this is not a temporary thing but an ongoing permanent thing. This Messiah, this King who has come, this one and this anointed one, 
He will be perfectly endowed by the Spirit for everything required by His kingly task. He is everything that we need Him to be. Verse 2, wisdom and understanding for leadership, counsel and might to execute His wise plans, knowledge and the fear of the Lord for holiness. He is not deceived by appearances like many judges are, but He judges in righteousness. He defends the weak and he destroys the wicked. This is good news for the poor. And look again at verse 5. It says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The language here is of the garments of the, of the intimate places of the body. It refers to who he is most deeply, who he is at his deepest level. When you strip away everything else, what do you find in this king? What is his heart? He is righteous and faithful. Can such a king be trusted in our weariness when we're heavy laden? Can can such a king be trusted when we're weak and, and aware of our sin? Absolutely, we can trust this king. In his commentary on the book of Isaiah, John Oswald very wisely and helpfully observes, here is a king in whose hands the concerns of the weakest will be safe. What a glorious picture. The king who is returning, the root of Jesse, identified in the gospels as Jesus of Nazareth. He is righteous and faithful. He does not break the bruised reed. He will not quench the smoking flax. Rather, he deals gently with us, with the weak and the wayward. Ray Ortland, in his commentary, describes this king this way. He says, Jesus does not need our mechanisms for power. He has another way to build the world of our dreams. He has the spirit of wisdom and understanding for leadership, the spirit of counsel and might for war, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord for holiness. Unlike every other human leader in the sorry length of our history, Jesus is literally qualified to rule the world. We have nothing to fear from him. We are foolish to resist him, and we can never be too loyal to him. Friends, the king is returning. His coming is certain, and this changes the way that we think about our lives. It changes the way that we think about Christmas. It changes the way and the place that we seek refuge in. It changes the nature of our prayers and the nature of our singing, both in content and in confidence. We can look to Him in full confidence that He knows all of our weakness and our sin, not simply the the 5% that you are aware of. He sees all of it, and He sets His face to you. He comes to you, and he ransoms you. He offers redemption and rescue. So let's rejoice, first of all, brothers and sisters, because our king is returning. Secondly, rejoice in the reign of the king, verses 5 through 9. Now, you don't have to be a zoologist to know that what is described here is unusual at best. It is not normal. Wolves don't dwell with lambs. They eat lambs. Lions do not hang out with the calves. They target and devour them. And children certainly don't play over the dens of poisonous snakes. And if they do, they don't live to tell the tale. Now, what is being described here is what we can anticipate in the reign of our returning king. 
What is described here is the reverse of the curse set in place in Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against him. See, when God created the world and he placed man in the garden, he created a paradise. There was no harm. There was no sin. There was no, there, there was no fear. The Garden of Eden was a land of harmony between living creatures. There was no killing or pain. Until, that is, the serpent began to introduce questions about God's character. He whispered to Adam and Eve, you can't really trust him. You need to seek out fulfillment apart from him. And so they did. And as a result, we have lived in a world ruled by the curse ever since. We work not in pure joy and ease, but by the sweat of our brow. We have conflict and war. We have temptation. Our bodies get sick, and we have all kinds of physical challenges and trials. We are harassed and helpless to change it on our own. But Isaiah says it will not be so forever. When the king returns, when the branch of David comes in power, he, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the nursing child will, pl- will play in total safety over the den of the cobra. This is a restoration of the life of Eden. It is a reverse of the curse. It is a walking back of the effects of the fall. It is an introduction into the kingdom of heaven. On that day, we will no longer walk around in fear or in self-preservation mode. But we will enjoy peace, trust, and complete harmony. What is the mechanism of this change? Look again at verse 9. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Those three letters, that one word for in verse 9 is theologically significant because it states the mechanism of this peace. What is the cause of it? The knowledge of the Lord. Jeffrey Grogan in his commentary, he says... God's people need more than the promise of fertile land or of continued national life through the remnant. They need the very incarnation of God's life in the Messiah. And that is exactly what we get in Jesus Christ. I recently finished reading the, uh, the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia series to my seven-year-old. And one of our favorite parts is when Aslan comes back in power and runs around the courtyard of the white witch, breathing life on all the creatures who'd been turned to stone. Do you remember this moment? And there's rejoicing, and there's shouting, and they're, and they're running around with joy, and, and the, line is, is, the other lion that's returned to life runs up to Aslan, and he's purring on him, and he's pawing on him, and he's, and he's so grateful and excited. What we read in these verses is no fictional imagination, but an authoritative proclamation of the return and the reign of our king and what we can anticipate under his reign. As we celebrate Christmas, friends, we are reminding one another in our own hearts and celebrating that our Savior has been born in the flesh, and he has set in motion the events that will lead to this final restoration. It is a joyful time, not primarily because of gifts and rich food, wonderful as they are. It is a joyful time because of the promise of the end of sin and suffering. It is a joyful time full of rejoicing because of the full restoration of life that is promised and held out and induced for us here in these verses. And it is here that Jesus speaks into our life today, in our year 
that, that may be full of trial and tragedy and suffering. It's here that he speaks into your present suffering and proclaims that your pain has an expiration date. He will restore, he will redeem all the years that the locusts have eaten. He will return the smile of joy upon your face. And that is reason to rejoice. Amen? Finally and briefly, we have reason to rejoice in the triumph of our king. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. When I first read this, I'd, I read this word signal, and I'm, I'm a little bit confused, but it's not a word that we're using a lot in this sense. But signal is another word for banner or flag. And it's to this that the peoples will look to. So what is this signal of our king? It is the signal that will draw our attention, that will draw the attention of the nations to inquire. The signal of the Messiah is not a flag or a banner, but it's a cross. The signal of the Messiah is the cross of Jesus. He does not win us over with his swagger or with empty promises. He doesn't hire a PR firm and and go on tour to win over our affections. He doesn't need one. Jesus has decisively won our victory through the cross on which he died. He has triumphed over our greatest enemy by shedding his own blood. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we can become the righteousness of God. That cross, that is the signal. That is our banner. That is our flag. And it declares that the battle is over. Our king has completely won. What Isaiah's prophesied has been partially realized in the incarnation of Jesus. The first advent, in other words, is the down payment on the second advent. There is more to anticipate. You see, the message of Christmas isn't only about the incarnation of Jesus, but it's also about what we can anticipate when Christ returns. There's a war movie that, that I've enjoyed that depicts the, this battle going on and the army is retreating in fear of their enemies until their leader picks up a flag And he waves it proudly, and he runs toward his enemy in a self-sacrificial manner. And it is an invigorating moment that, that breathes life into the troops. And they all have hope restored, and they begin to run with him back toward the enemy. Jesus does not rally us at the cross so that we will gather enough strength to defeat the enemy, because he's already done that. No, Jesus, our true king, gives us a better reason to rally. He gives us a better reason to have hope. He gives us a better reason to rejoice. Because at the cross, we have confidence and find rest in the victory that has been utterly accomplished for us, that he has already achieved. And so this evening, and as we anticipate celebrating Christmas Day tomorrow, I want to invite you to look to the cross to rejoice. I want you to look to the cross when you're weary and heavy laden. I want you to look to the cross when you're aware of your sin and shame. I want you to look to the cross in the moments of your conflict and disappointment and find hope there and find many reasons to rejoice. 
I want you to look to the cross. As we celebrate the first advent of our Savior, let's rejoice in gratefulness for the provision of Jesus, our Savior, and let's joyfully anticipate the second advent to come. Please join me in prayer. Well, Father, we do thank you again for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of the incarnation that we heard about on Sunday and that, we will, and that we've sung songs about tonight. We thank you for the gift of Christmas that we celebrate again this evening and tomorrow morning, the birth of our Savior, the coming of our King. And I pray right now, Father, that you would fill all of our hearts with real reasons to rejoice. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our convictions and our grip upon the gospel. Lift our eyes to see your victory and the triumph that we enjoy because of Jesus. Fill our hearts full of gladness and let our lips burst forth in song. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.